Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, obviously. Hear the word of God. So the king and Haman went to dinner with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request, for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up at a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman realized the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 70 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows. He had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, in your mercy once again that you are a faithful, gracious God who truly is a loving Heavenly Father. And yet, the whole human race has sinned against your righteousness and your holiness. And we all must get our just desserts. Either we will die because of our sin, or another will take our place. We thank you for the gospel that leads us even to the Lord Jesus Christ here where justice uh, pervades, that the one who perpetrated such a dastardly deed got his just deserts. We pray, Lord, that we would understand what we deserved, but because of your rich mercy and your fathomless love, we have been rescued from our fate. Please encourage us in the preaching of the word this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Scott at a staff meeting maybe two months ago told us, his staff, that he's decided to preach a series through Esther. I have to tell you that in 49 years of ministry, I've never preached a series through Esther. I've preached 
on, for a time such as this, we see that in the fourth chapter, that God has raised up Esther for a time such as this to spare the lives of the Jews to show himself as a, as a faithful covenant-keeping God. And I thought, oh, brother, what, what have you gotten yourself into? How in the world are you going to pull anything together in these ten chapters? Immediately, I thought about a situation that I was in, in Miami. We had Sunday evening service. I had led a rough and tough contractor to the Lord. He continued to badger me to preach through the book of Revelation. And I acquiesced to his desire, thinking that this would encourage him in his walk, and I'd never done that before. I knew that it's not the easiest book to preach through, and all 22 chapters, you really want me to do that? Oh, yeah, he was, he was, he was really encouraged that, that I had accepted his challenge to open up the book of Revelation to him. Things went well in the first chapter, the second chapter, the third chapter, a little shaky into the fourth, and then the fifth chapter, and he came to me and said, not what I expected, I ain't coming back. So I didn't preach Revelation again. No, I'm just kidding. I had to go through 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, all to say, Scott has done a wonderful job in, in opening these chapters up, and I just, I commend you, brother. Kudos uh, to your ability to, to, to pull out uh, application, the, the holy so what's, the takeaways, uh, to graciously outline the story that I'm going to, to read you in summary, and that I'm very, very proud of our, of our lead pastor in wanting to, to just meditate on this and to lay it before us because there's some great truths, obviously about God being in the shadows. So, hear this brief narrative to bring those of you who've not been with us the whole time in order for me to be able to see. Here's the transition from my introduction and my kudos to the transition. The sovereign God is moving in the shadows by his providence to save his people. Haman, a man highly favored by King Xerxes, manipulates him to declare the extent extinction of all the Jews throughout Persia. Mordecai, a Jew, and the cousin of Queen Esther has offended Haman's honor by not bowing down to him as commanded by the king's edict. The king wanted to honor Haman, and he said, because you uh, have honored me, I want those who come in contact with you throughout the kingdom to bow themselves before you. Haman plots to kill Mordecai in revenge for hanging him, revenge by hanging him on a 75-foot gallows. When Mordecai learned of the plot to kill all the Jews, he knew his only hope was to persuade Queen Esther to risk her life by coming before the king to ask that she and all her people be spared. A point before the inflection point that we find in this chapter comes in chapter 4 that I alluded to a little bit earlier. It's when Mordecai comes before Queen Esther to saying that God has raised you up perhaps for a time such as this. Listen to that because it sets up what's happening in chapter 7. 
I'm reading from chapter 4, verses 12 and following. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape extinction? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to, royal, to a royal position for such a time as this. Such a time as this. And so we see the, the inflection point will be the setup of something to change and then to move positively forward for such a time as this. As I'm used over Esther, knowing that I had preached from at, at such a time as this, we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures, New Testament scriptures, we see throughout church history that God raises men and women up. God raises people up for times such as this. Think with me. Uh, in the Old Testament, how God raised Moses up, giving of the law, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. Think of King David, a righteous King David, who walked with the Lord, who was the friend of God, how he was raised up to show forth the glories of the kingdom. Think in the New Testament of Peter uh, at the council who defended the gospel going to the Gentiles, raised up for a time such as this. Think about the Apostle Paul sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, gaining this, this awesome background and understanding of his own heritage, and then understanding the good news of the gospel of God's grace. Third use of the law was that, that he preached very clearly that the law was given to us in order to convict us and convince us that we're hopeless and helpless before an all-holy God. But it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ who did for his people that which he could not, that we could not do for ourselves. The third use of the law is we very specifically understand that the law leads us to Christ. And in the third use of the law, the law leads us back or Jesus Christ then leads us back to obedience to God. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And he, he leads us to that joy of wanting to serve the living and true God in obedience of life. Think about inflection points in church history. Think about St. Augustine or Augustine. How he began to understand and he began to write about the, the just shall live by faith alone. Brought he, grace into the mix of church history and understanding that it's by grace alone, through Christ alone. And then think about John Calvin, who wrote a, a tract to the king of France because he wanted the king of France to understand why he was doing what he was doing. It turned out to be the Institutes of the Christian Religion that's about that thick, two books together. But it was a treatise on the good news of the gospel to this Roman Catholic king. Think about your own lives. Maybe you've never thought about your own life when it comes to this. Why were you created? Why has God formed you with the gifts and graces that he's given you? Is it not to glorify him and enjoy him? Is it not to serve at critical points in your life as now professed Christians for a time such as this? Who knows? 
what influence you've already had, you won't know that, this side of glory, or what influences you're going to have in the years ahead when it comes to glorifying God, when it comes to making clear witness to those who do not know him, when it comes to being supportive of the work of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I could go on and on. That's not the sermon. But I want you to see very specifically, uh, what about Queen Esther? Esther has come to a time such as this, and we find it in chapter 7. Three points to the sermon. The first is that Esther's petition to the king, verses 1 through 4, then the king's response, 5 to 9, and then God's justice is upheld in Haman's life. He gets his just desserts, verse 10. So hear me read once again, verses 1 through 4, Esther's petition to the king. You know that she invited Haman and the king to a banquet. He didn't disclose why. The king wants to know, but acquiesces to the queen's decision to bring them back the next day in order to reveal why. So the king is primed to support Esther, and he's probably frustrated by saying, I told you, I'd give you, I'd give you half my kingdom. I want to know, I want to know. What is this? <laughs> and she sets him up. And so we have this now. Here is Esther's petition, led by a sovereign God who is not hiding in the shadows, but is in the shadows showing his providence to spare a people for himself. And so we have verses 1 through 4. So the king and Haman went to dine, I'd say a second time, with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, I will, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. It is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, it would have, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. She lays it out very clearly that she's a Jewess and that Haman had manipulated, even put money into the king's coffers in order to leverage his influence to say these people are a, are a pain in the neck. These people uh, would not truly honor you as the king of kings and lord of lords for they have another, it's Jehovah God. And so she reveals what this is, not only for herself, but for all of her people, as the edict went out that all the Jews would come to slaughter. We've been sold for destruction. What was the king's response? The king having to think through, how could this have taken place? What has, what has gone on that, that you are at the point of losing your life because of my edict. And not only you, but obviously Mordecai and all the other Jews within the kingdom. The king's response, verses 5 through 9. Then 
King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther his life. I won't read the rest of it, but could you see this? Haman has come, thinking that he's going to be honored. A blessing to be invited by the queen. And yet, this is an expose. And the king has to make a choice between Queen Esther and the Jews or Haman, who has been a faithful, supposedly, subject to the king, but has acted in a dastardly manner. It was instantaneous that he chooses chooses Queen Esther and sparing the lives of the Jews. Who has perpetrated this upon you? And she looks across into the eyes of the king, and she says, this, this, this vile Haman. Haman knows that the jig is up, and that he's been found out as not being a loyal subject, but an, a disloyal subject to the king. Where's this man, he said. The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. The gallows meant for Mordecai will be Haman's. King says, finding out what has been done, that Haman's life will be taken and not that of you, Esther, or the Jews. And then thirdly, God's justice was upheld in Haman's life. Uh, verse, verse 10, very simply. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury was subsided. As I thought about this passage of scripture, very simply, um, I I wanted to open up just briefly what Scott has prayed about the justice of God. Um, I've got to tell you, I'm really challenged uh, by... Um, how unjust so many things are within our society today. I immediately thought about the death penalty and how in the Old Testament, very clearly, the, the, the man who, who commits murder is in turn to lose his life. The whole subject opened up and, and uh, I believe in the death penalty and I believe it ought to be justice weeded out quickly. I believe that it it is a deterrent uh, to how lax we become. Uh, We become a killing society. Uh, You think of Chicago, you think of Atlanta, you think of um, South Florida, places we've been. And so it really tugged at my heart to think in terms of the justice of God. The justice of God clearly is laid out in the scriptures, that he is a just God. In our shorter catechism question, question number four, it's what is God? What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. 
How would you define justice? I can define it as I look through the various commentators talking about what is justice. You can go to the dictionary, but it doesn't give us one that incorporates an understanding of a holy God. Listen to what is justice. Is it up on the screen? It's the moral standard by which God measures human conduct. It's founded upon his holiness and expectation that we will walk in his righteousness. Very simply. Micah, the prophet, wrote, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Three things. To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God calls us as his people to be a just people and to seek justice within our own society. His justice is a communicable attribute, attribute, and to be upheld in a just society, whether it's corporately or individually, we must strive for justice within our society. And yet, uh, the older I get, the more I realize that we are not the just society that God has called us to truly be. There should be a picture coming up. She's there. Who is this? this who's, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Uh, who is this? This is Lady Justice. What are three things you see about Lady Justice in this picture? Three, three things that stand out. Well, she's solid and well-built. That's not what I'm... <laughs> what, what are three things that... that come, on, come on, this is, this is a dialogue now. This is not just a monologue. What do you see? Okay, first of all, she's blindfolded. Secondly, somebody said over here, there's a scale, scale of justice, blindfolded scale of justice, but what's standing by her side, or what she's holding by her side? Yeah, okay, a sword of righteousness. Okay, <laughs> the sword goes swiftly, <laughs> uh, but, but it is, you get your just desserts. There is punishment when... Justice is to be brought forward. So we have those three things. So here, what I'd like to say is justice is a communicable attribute, a just society. It should be impartial. Where do we find that in the picture? It should be impartial, without favor, blindfolded, right? Everybody treated equally. You think that's happening in our society? Don't think so, do you? I could go into, I could start, I'm not going to do that. Secondly, proportional. The penalty fits the crime. What do you see? Where's that? The scale of justice. And then we have, it's swift and it's a deterrent to evil. The, the evil will be punished. And I believe it ought to be done a lot quicker than it is. Do you know that there are those mistakes being made, I know, of those who are falsely accused about murder? But I'm saying the odds are when you have all the facts before you and you see that a crime has been perpetrated and, and there's no doubt about it, rather than the legal eagles sparing a person's life for decades, I believe that justice ought to be executed justly. 
And it is a deterrent. Don't you ever think that when you think in terms of the swiftness of justice in a just society, that it's not a deterrent. Matter of fact, God says it is a deterrent, and that's why it ought to be used. Okay, I'm, I'm politicking now, so you just have to bear with me. So it was Haman's life, our understanding of he received his just desserts. Haman deserved it, and he died immediately on his own gallows that he made for, for Mordecai. God's justice will prevail. This is our segue into application. His justice will prevail. The scripture very clearly says, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. That we all deserve to die and to spend an eternity separated from God in hell. Just, justice upheld in our lives said, you have broken the law of God. Point after point after point. Is God merciful? And the answer is absolutely. Has he offered, has he proffered a good news of the gospel? The answer is absolutely. Somebody is going to pay for our sin and my sin. You're either going to pay for your rebellion against the holy God. He says that very clearly. Or there has to be a substitute. That's the good news of the gospel. There is a substitute. And his name is Jesus. And God in his mercy and in his awesome love for us has done what I've said repeatedly for us, what we could not do for ourselves. Parenthetically, there are two ways to heaven. You know that. First is perfect obedience, and none of us measure up. The second is the work of the Savior in his life, death, and resurrection, raised for us. One of the most precious verses that you could memorize is found in Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 4. It has everything to do with God's uh, mercy and, and his love for us. Let me read that for you. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. And here's where the grace of God comes in. But God because of his great love for us God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions because sin brings death. It is by grace you have been saved. Then it goes on. And then secondly, we see the application is found in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and following. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. God is just, and he's the justifier of those who, who come to him in faith believing in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His great mercy is proffered to us this is grace, free grace, unmerited grace, redemptive grace, sanctifying grace. We are a needy people. We cry out as a whole. I want justice. And God says, you don't want justice. You want mercy. The man that says, <clears throat> my, works outweigh my, my good works outweigh my bad works is crying out, for justice in his own life. And we say in the gospel, you don't want 
the justice of God. You want the mercy of God. And he's offered that in grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for being a just God. We tremble and we fear before your justice. But you have, in your grace, shown your great mercy to us. In your great love, you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to bear our burden, to bear our sin, to feel the wrath of a just God upon his precious son who took our place on the cross, rose again for our justification. Be pleased to enable us to live holy and righteous lives before you and to cry out for our nation that we would, we would become a just people. That we, in our understanding of what true justice is, that in our relations we would understand impartiality, the proportionalness of the punishment meets the crime, that it would be swift, And this would be a deterrent to evil. Hear our prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.